I'm gonna share my screen right now. Right. So today's sermon, we are moving to a new series and we're gonna, it's gonna be centered on the Lord's Prayer. We spent the last four or five months um, in the book of James and we finished that last, uh, last time. <clears throat> and so for the month of December, we are focusing on the Lord's Prayer for the three weeks that we have. And then a small preview in January to March, we're going to go into uh, the new series of God, sex, and relationships. We do that every other year. So things like dating, marriage, uh, homosexuality, how can we as Christians think through that? So that's in January to March. And so we'll send your parents and you guys more information on that. But in the month of December, we're going to focus on uh, the Lord's Prayer. So I actually want to start off by showing a movie clip. It's only like a minute and a half, uh, just to um, kind of set the scene for this. And it's from the movie, uh, meet the parents. I've actually never seen the whole movie, but I've seen this clip multiple times because my pastor showed it to me, uh, when I was a youth and we we're talking about prayer. And I think it can relate to, um, the topic of the Lord's prayer today. And so for context, there's a main character, I believe played by Ben Stiller. And he's meeting, I think his fiance's parents for the first time uh, at the dinner table. And so the parent, um, uh, the fiance's parents asked him to pray, uh, but I don't think he really knows how to pray. And so this is him trying to do his best. So let me uh, share this really short clip. Okay. Uh... Greg, would you like to say grace? Oh, uh, well... Uh, Greg's Jewish dad, you know that. You're telling me Jews don't pray, honey? Unless you have some objection. No, 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 I'd love to. Pam, come on, it's not like I'm a rabbi or something. I said grace in many a dinner table. It's... Okay. Oh... Dear God, thank you. You are such a good God to us, a, a kind and gentle and accommodating God. And we thank you, oh sweet, sweet Lord of hosts, for the smorgasbord you have so aptly laying at our table this day and each day by day day by day by day oh dear lord three things we pray to love thee more dearly to see thee more clearly to follow thee more nearly day by day by day amen amen oh greg that was lovely thank you greg that was interesting too <laughs> okay so let me uh go back to our main powerpoint um everyone as a youth when they showed a movie um in 
the English service. They show this clip. And I'm like, and I was thinking, oh my gosh, yes, the movie. They're showing a movie, but I think I'm showing it today because I think it really does relate to um, our sermon today. And maybe for some of us, we feel like uh, Ben Stiller, the main guy in uh, the movie, that we don't know how to pray. Maybe we wonder, does prayer even work? Um, what words are we supposed to say? Uh, what are we supposed to talk about when we pray? Does God care about how we approach him in prayer? So I think this is just a silly movie clip, but maybe we can relate to it at some level. And so this month in December, we're going to focus on uh, the Lord's Prayer. And so this takes place, or it's recorded in uh, the book of Matthew, but also in the book of Luke, but we'll focus on the book of Matthew this month. And so he writes this gospel um, to show that Jesus is the Messiah. He is sent by God to save uh, the world from, its sin, from their sins. And so the Lord's Prayer, it takes place uh, in the greatest sermon in history, the Sermon on the Mount. And the Lord's Prayer is central in the Sermon on the Mount, and it reflects what should matter most to Christ followers. And so the Lord's Prayer is something that deserves our attention. We're not going to see this in the book of Matthew, but in the book of Luke, it's actually the disciples who go to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And so Jesus turns to them and teaches them how to pray. And so that's what we're going to focus on uh, in the book of De or in the month of December. And this is our preview um, for today's sermon. The Lord's Prayer, we're first going to look at the proper motivation to prayer. That's point number one. Point number two, the proper approach to prayer. And then point number three, the proper concern of prayer. Motivation, why do we pray? Number two, how do we approach God in prayer? Number three, what should we talk about in prayer? And so we're just going to unpack that today. And so if you have your Bibles, let's jump into this. Let's turn to Matthew chapter six. Matthew chapter six. And I'll have some verses on this PowerPoint, uh, not all of them. So it will help today to have your Bibles open. Matthew chapter six, and we'll be in verse five. So I'll begin reading. I'm actually going to read the entire Lord's Prayer, but I'm going to start in verse five, because this is when Jesus begins giving instructions on how to pray. So Matthew chapter six, verses five says this, Jesus is talking. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for the many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, 
neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So we'll stop there. And so now we're going to talk about the proper motivation to prayer as we dive into the Lord's Prayer. So point number one, there is first a wrong motivation to prayer. And the first one is this. It's wrong to pray if you want to impress other people. Verse five, uh, Jesus says, do not be like the hypocrites. When you pray, you must not be like hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners. Now, back then, a street corner or a synagogue was a very public posture. And so the purpose for these hypocrites was they just wanted to impress people uh, who looked on. And so they just wanted to look spiritual to other people. Now, let me be clear. Jesus is not condemning public prayer. In fact, I just prayed before uh, this sermon. But what Jesus is condemning is the evil motive to seek attention in prayer. People who pray in order to seek the reward of human applause. And it says that uh, at the end of verse five, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. What does that mean? Well, people who want the attention of, their, of other people, Jesus is saying, you know what? They may get what they want. They may get the reward of human applause, but that's all they get. They will receive nothing from God. They will receive no reward from God. For those of us uh, who maybe serve or maybe we pray in public settings, we have to be careful of how we carry ourselves in these public church settings. It can be awfully tempting to, to serve, to be on leadership, to pray publicly, to be on worship team, to do all of these things in a way to get attention and to have other people think, wow, that person is so spiritual. Look at their prayer. And so Jesus here sees that and says that is the wrong motivation. The second wrong motivation is this, to pray in autopilot. I just want to call it that, to mindlessly repeat words when you pray. Look at verses 7 to 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask them before you ask him. So the second wrong motivation is to pray mindlessly, just saying words you don't even know what, the, what it means. So while the hypocrites stood on the street corners, the Gentiles, they would pray uh, using words they wouldn't even understand, or they used it so much it had no more meaning to them. And so they would pray long prayers, just mindlessly repeating themselves. In fact, in some um, rabbinic sources, they would say that sometimes Jews would pray nine hours a day, that's a long time. <laughs> and again, Jesus is not condemning praying for a long period of time. In fact, there are times when Jesus would pray all night long. So he's not condemning the length of our prayers, but he is condemning when we pray uh, with our, without our hearts, when our hearts are not in it, when we are praying in autopilot. We're just saying words we don't mean. We're using big words uh, that we don't really understand. And again, it's not wrong to say the same things over and over again if you truly believe and it comes from an earnest heart. It's not wrong to say, Lord, we want to seek your kingdom and to pray that every week if that's truly the desire of your heart. So again, prayer is not a time to show off how many theological terms you know. It's not a time to demonstrate how long you can pray. Prayer is a time where we can come before God and seek his presence with the words that we know. 
So what's the right motivation to pray? Well, there's this one that Jesus outlines. The right motivation to pray is praying to simply be with God. Look at verse six. It says this, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Wow. So we go into your room and you shut the door. It likely meant back then a private place of prayer. And the point is not that we should all go into our rooms and lock everybody out and pray in a soundproof room. The point is that our focus is to be on God and his presence. The focus is not on other people, getting them to notice us, any of that um, garbage. The focus is on God, not about showing off. So it does help if you're at home uh, to find a quiet place in your house. Uh, maybe it's your backyard. Uh, it could be in a car where there are other people, but you're not trying to show off to your other people in your car. You're just trying to find a quiet place with God. It could be on a hiking trail. It could be in your neighborhood. The focus is on God and being in his presence to long for him. And for me personally, when I pray, I, I have different places where I like to pray. Sometimes it's on my couch. Sometimes I pace around in my house. In college, I would walk around the apartment complex at night because it was quiet. Uh, growing up in my original house, I would pray um, just right outside my door because I loved um, how dark the sky looked. And it was just so peaceful where I could just focus on God. So whatever it is for you, the focus is less on being in a private place and locking everybody out. The focus is simply to be with God. That is the right motivation in prayer. And so now that we saw the proper motivation to, prayer, uh, to pray, the question might come up, well, what do we pray about? What, what do we actually talk about? Um, and this is when we actually get into the meat of the Lord's prayer. I didn't want to spend as much time on the motivation. I want to focus more on the Lord's prayer. So that's why I'm kind of moving quickly along. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen uh, some of these, uh, this thing called masterclass. Uh, it's basically, I don't know what to call it. It's like online. And it basically, this website wants to teach you certain skills from the best of the best. So you can learn comedy with Steve Martin. You can learn how to write songs with Alicia Keys. You can learn how to score film uh, with Hans Zimmer. You can learn how to cook with Wolf Gang Puck. Uh, you can learn how to skateboard with Tony Hawk. You can learn how to shoot baskets with Steph Curry. So this website, Masterclass, is just the best of the best teaching everyday people like you and me how to do certain skills. I think the beauty of the Lord's Prayer is that we are learning from Jesus who is the master of all masters, that we are sitting at the feet of Jesus and he's teaching us how to pray. And this costs nothing. Masterclass, it's $15 a month. That's a lot. But Jesus is giving us this lesson for free. So if you're a disciple, if you're a Christian or a Christ follower right now, don't you want to learn from the master of all masters, Jesus Christ, who knows how to pray? We are sitting at his feet, and right now, he wants to show us how to pray. So let's listen to what Jesus has to say. So if, you're, if your Bibles are open, look at verse 9. This is going to lead us into the second point, which is the proper approach to prayer. Verse 9 says, pray then like this, Jesus talking, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So we're going to break this down one phrase at a time. The proper approach to prayer 
is to address God as your father. That is the proper approach to prayer, to address God as your father. This is an incredibly rich spiritual reality that we often forget and we just zoom right past a heavenly father. And then we jump into help me get a good, te- a good test grade. But let's stop and pause at this phrase that there is beauty and richness in this one phrase. Let's start off by just the word our in this phrase. Notice that Jesus doesn't say my father in heaven, give me each day my daily bread forgive me of my sins. He doesn't say that. If you look in this verse, there's not a single I, me, or personal pronoun. It's we, it's our. So by saying our father in heaven, Jesus is saying that the Christian faith, it's not a self-centered faith. It's not an individual faith. That's just me and, um, and God, and that's it. When we become a believer, we are joined to the body of Christ, which is the church. And it's incredible truth. If you go on missions and go to like Arizona or Asia, India, and you meet other believers, there's something beautiful that binds you together that you and that other person share the same heavenly father. There is unity in our Christian faith. It's like when I married Vanessa, automatically I have a new mother and father-in-law, whether I like it or not. And don't get me wrong, I like it. Uh, They bring more food all the time. It's really amazing. Um, Just had some earlier. But when we, likewise, when you become a Christian, you automatically are adopted into the family of God. You are joined and united to the church, whether you like it or not. So this prayer, it's meant to be a corporate prayer. It's meant to be prayed in a corporate setting. It doesn't mean you can't pray it on your own. You can definitely still pray it individually, but it finds its greatest purpose in being prayed together corporately as a church. And so that's the beauty of our, but now we get to father, you know, in the old Testament and new Testament, God identifies himself in many names. He calls himself Lord almighty King. He's known as judge master, but in the Lord's prayer out of all the names that Jesus could have chosen, he instructs us to call God father. This is amazing. In, uh, in the seventh grade, I had a friend, they had this shirt, um, and this is what it was called. This is what it looked like. It said, Jesus is my homeboy. This was the exact shirt that they were wearing. Uh, it was this girl and her friend. And I thought, wow, they must be very spiritual believers. They're wearing a shirt that talks about Jesus, that Jesus is their homeboy, that they love Jesus. It wasn't until later that I realized they're There are serious problems with this shirt and the message it's trying to convey. The problem is it treats Jesus as too casual, too comfortable, that he's just a buddy that you can, you know, hang out with your buddy on the weekends, that you can uh, just treat Jesus like a casual buddy. Now, in the Lord's Prayer, we're not addressing Jesus. We're addressing God the Father, but you kind of get the same principle that it is an incredible privilege to call God Father. And this is significant because it shows that God, he's not just an impersonal force. He's not just a random being. He is someone we can relate to as father. And so Jesus is not our homeboy. He's not just uh, the person we hang out with. He is intimate. We can know him so much more than any other human being. 
but there's a reference that comes with that, that uh, Jesus is our father in heaven. And so I think every single person in this room biologically has a father. Every person, if you were born, you had a mom and a dad. That's just, uh, that's just a fact. That's a biological fact. And so it's incredible that Jesus uh, identifies God as father in a way that we can understand. And we see fathers in real life, um, in movies and TV shows, and we, we know how good fathers are supposed to carry themselves and how they uh, treat um, their children. They should be loving and caring and empathetic and protective. These are good things about fathers. And so I think in a, in a similar way, we have a common ground to relate with God the Father. Now, here's the thing. In the ancient Near East, the concept of God as Father, this was rare. Ancient religion, they did not see their gods as an intimate father. But Christianity is unique as the one and only true religion that sees the love of our Heavenly Father that is incredibly unique. So in theological terms, as Christians, we know that we are justified by the blood of Christ, meaning that God, when he looks on us, he legally pardons us of all our sins and he, and he declares us to be righteous. This is the doctrine of justification. It is a glorious truth, but there's more. We're not just justified, we are adopted so that we are called children of God. If you have your Bibles, uh, keep a finger in Matthew, but turn to Romans 8. I want to show a very incredible verse, Romans 8, that the beauty of salvation, it doesn't end at justification, as glorious as that is, that our sins are forgiven, but it just keeps going. There's more. So we'll be in Romans 8. I'll give you a moment to turn there. <clears throat> Romans 8, let's look at verse 14. It says this, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is amazing. In salvation, the plan of salvation, we are not just justified and washed of our sins. God could have stopped there, but he goes a step further and he adopts us into his family. This is incredible. I want us to uh, read this quote from J.I. Packer. I thought this was just incredible. Um, he says this, the beauty of adoption. It says, in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge, justification is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father, adoption is a greater thing. I think I cut off that end on accident. Now, I'm not here to split hairs. I'm not trying to say justification and compare that with adoption. They're both glorious. We both need it for salvation. But I don't want us to miss the point that adoption is beautiful. That if we just only had justification, we'd be forgiven our sins, but we would miss out on that relationship with God our Father. 
So after we are justified, we are adopted into the family of God. This is a beautiful truth. So simply put, God loves you with a fatherly love. And maybe for some of us here, we don't have a great relationship with our earthly fathers. So it's hard for us to imagine that a heavenly father could be good. But I don't want us to begin with our earthly fathers and then project that onto God. Let's start with God, our heavenly father, and then see that our earthly fathers, uh, they're not perfect, but they're trying to do their best because they reflect um, the hearts of our perfect and heavenly father. This is uh, amazing. Maybe a silly example that can shed uh, some light into this. Um, I'm really happy to be uh, uh, um, at this church. I think Pastor Albert is um, a great senior pastor, but I would never call Pastor Albert my father. Th that would be awkward. If I just showed up to his house on Christmas with like uh, stuffing or I don't know, whatever you bring for Christmas, uh, he would probably open the door and say, what are you doing here? Go home, <laughs> go home to Vanessa. It would be awkward if I called him Papa or Dad or, or Father. That's not our relationship. We respect one another, I hope. But Pastor Howard is not my father. But that would change, wouldn't it, if he adopted me? <laughs> Sorry, it's so silly. That would change if Pastor Albert adopted me as his son. I would no longer be just an employee. I could go to his house anytime. I would go into his house and I could, I wouldn't have to say something like, oh, Pastor Albert, can I borrow that spoon? I want to eat my cereal. Uh, can I have some snacks? I'm a little hungry. If I am truly his adopted son, everything in his house is mine. His snacks are mine. I could sprawl on his couch and take a nap and he'd be like, all right, son, do what you want. If I got into a car accident, he would rush to the scene of the accident and be with me in the ambulance all the way to the hospital because he is my father and I am his son. This is what it means, the beauty of being adopted into the family of Pastor Albert. And so it is, so it is for Christians. When you become a Christian, God adopts you into his family. He doesn't just forgive your sins, that's incredible, but he adopts you as his heavenly father. There are no more formalities. We enter into an intimate relationship with God. Everything that belongs to him belongs to us. That's why we are heirs of God. This enables us to be in an intimate relationship as we relate to him. This is amazing. Okay, so going back to our father in heaven, we talked about uh, our, we talked about father, but now look at, look at this phrase really quickly. God is our heavenly father, but we have to remember that he is our father in heaven. So the significance of recognizing that God is our father in heaven, it balances that, yes, we understand we have an intimate relationship with God, but at the same time, we have to remember that he is in heaven and we are on, our, we are on earth. He is still the king of the universe. He still sits on his heavenly throne. We can't forget the infinite greatness of God's majesty, even as we relate to him as father. So yes, share the depths of your heart with God, your father, but also know that he is a father that is worthy of worship and reverence. None of us, none of us here worship our dads, our earthly dads, um, but God, our father, he is worthy to be worshiped. And that is the significance 
of seeing God, our Father in heaven. So what are some applications we can take from this first uh, phrase, our Father in heaven? Here's what I believe the Bible is trying to get us to take away from this, that the application is to anchor your prayers in the great theological reality that God is our Father and you are his beloved child. I'm going to say something that might sound a little weird, and it's this. Don't trust your feelings. I know in this world that we live in, we're told to trust your feelings. You do you. Um, trust the truth. And your feelings will say, uh, God isn't there. God doesn't care about you. Um, those are, sorry, there's someone at my door. Uh, Vanessa, can you <laughs> just check the door really quick? Um, Sorry. Um, so our, our application is to anchor your prayers in the theological reality that God is at our father. God is our father and you are his beloved child. I think when we, um, sometimes when we listen to our feelings, sometimes we think that God's not there, that he's uh, distant, that he's aloof, that he's impersonal. But I want us to not trust our feelings and to trust the reality that God is your father. Maybe you don't feel close to God. Maybe you don't feel that you have a good relationship right now. That's okay. Set your feelings aside and trust the truth that God is our father and you are his beloved child. He's there. He is there. Okay, so now that we approach God as our heavenly father, well, what do we talk about? And that leads us to the second point. What is the proper concern of prayer? What should we actually talk about uh, when we pray? And so the next phrase in this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. This is the next phrase. Now, the first question that might pop out to you guys is what is the word hallowed? What does that even mean? I see it in Harry Potter in the Deathly Hallows. I see it in the word Halloween. But what is the word hallow actually mean and uh it's kind of indicative that we don't use this word nowadays because of how secular our culture is becoming to hallow something means to make something holy to consider something as sanctified and, and set apart in a secular culture that we live in that denies the existence the existence of god it's no uh, surprise that the word hallowed has kind of fallen out of our modern vocabulary but we have to remember that we don't live in a secular world. The physical and the spiritual world interact and overlap. And so hallow is a very important word. And so to hallow something is to make something, to, to declare something as holy, to consider something as holy. And if you forgot what holy means, it refers to the absolute moral purity of God. We know that God is holy. Uh, God is perfect. While humanity is sinful and imperfect. So God's holiness, it means that he is set apart from everything else in all creation. Uh, God is in a category of his own. His creation, humanity, trees, oceans, bugs, it is in a class that is below, infinitely below God. Maybe another silly example is compare Michael Jordan in basketball uh, to a toddler running basketball for the first time in our FCBC Wee League. So they're all short and they can't do much. <laughs> Michael Jordan 
is, can be seen in a sense as holy in the sense that he is set apart from every other basketball player. People like to call him the GOAT, the greatest of all time, because it can be argued he is the greatest basketball player of all time after Alex Caruso, and he's in a tier all by himself. And so it's ridiculous to compare Michael Jordan to a toddler learning how to play basketball. So on an infinite scale, God is, in a sense, the goat of all goats. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, completely holy and perfect. That's why Isaiah said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty in Isaiah 6. So to hallow something is to make or consider something as holy. And this word here, it's actually in the form of a command or an appeal. So when we pray, we're asking God, God, would you hallow your name? God, would you make your name holy? And we have to understand God is trying, we're asking God to hallow his name in all the earth. What is that? What are we actually asking God to do when we are asking him to hallow his name? Back then, uh, a name back then meant more than it does now. My name's Kevin, but that's just an, identi uh, an identity marker. You don't know me as uh, anything else. It's just uh, my name. Um, but back then, your name was important. It referred to your character. It referred to um, your, your, uh, maybe your, your reputation. And so think of maybe uh, the villain Thanos. Um, that actually comes from the Greek word Thanatos, which means death. Whenever you hear the name Thanos, you know it's not just the purple guy, that's his name, but you also know his reputation, his mission. He wants to wipe out half of the population. So his name carries more than just an identity marker. It's his mission, his reputation, what he's all about. So with, with God's name, it's how we identify him, but it's also referring to his character and his authority and his deeds. So when we ask God to hallow your name uh, on earth, it is to ask God to work and act in such a way that everyone on earth would worship you and treat your name as holy. All right, let's get a little more crazy with this example. Going back to Michael Jordan as the goat, imagine that you travel to a planet full of munchkins. They're trying to learn how to play basketball. They're really bad. They're really short. They airball everything. They have no idea who Michael Jordan is. They think another munchkin on that planet is the goat of basketball. But you know that Michael Jordan is the goat of basketball because you just know he's the best. If you were to go to this munchkin planet, the name of Michael Jordan would not be hallowed. His name would not be revered or worshiped. And so if you had a mission to make sure these munchkins would hallow the name of Michael Jordan on this munchkin planet, your job would to hopefully work in a way where these munchkins would see highlight videos of Michael Jordan and see how good he was so that at the end of the day, they recognize that he is the greatest of all time. Likewise, we live in a world that does not believe God is king. We live in a world that believes, that does not believe that God is our creator, that God sent Jesus to die on the cross. So when we appeal to God to hallow his name on earth, we are asking God to work in a way uh, where the world would see God as the only one worthy of worship. We pray, God, would you hallow your name? Would you make your name holy in all the earth? 
Would you make your reputation uh, magnificent? God, would you help the world see that you alone are God, that you are our ultimate treasure? God, would you hallow your name and make your name great in the sermon, in small groups, in my family relationships, in my academics? God, would you make your would you hallow your name in all of life? And you know what the catch is? God does want to hallow his name, but he does it by sanctifying or maturing the church. That's you and me, so that you and I can faithfully bear his name in the world. And so, in a sense, this is a call for us to live faithfully as Christians so that other people would hallow the name of God. Here's my application for this. Um, pray that God would increase your worship of him, not just to answer your personal needs. When we are asking God to hallow his name, we're really asking God, God, can you change my heart? God, can you expand my heart to worship you more so that I see you as the ultimate treasure? A lot of times, maybe we think prayer is getting what we want, that we jump into prayer. God, can you just help turn that B plus into an A? God, can you just make me feel happier in life? God, can you uh, get me a boyfriend and girlfriend in life? God, can you just make the pain in my life go away? Can you just take away this person in my life because they're causing a lot of pain? If prayer is just about answering our personal needs, that reduces God to nothing more than a personal genie. Now, there is a place for asking God for help in your grades, asking to provide a godly husband or wife in the future. There's a place for that, but it's secondary. What's primary is that God's name would be hallowed. God's name would be worshiped, that God's glory would be manifest in all the earth. So that prayer, it's fundamentally about the glory of God, hallowing and worshiping his name. So let me ask you, are you aware of what you're praying for when we ask God to hallow his name? Can you accept that God may not open the door to your top college? Because maybe it's your second choice college that would be the path that would allow you to worship God best. Can you accept that God may not remove a trial in your life? He may not remove this group of friends who are harassing you. He may not remove this bad teacher in your life. He may not heal a loved one. But maybe God allows and permits these difficulties because he knows that it's through trials that you arrive at a deeper dependence and worship of God to ultimately hallow his name. Can you accept that God, he didn't make you a certain way. Maybe you wish you were taller, stronger, prettier, skinnier, darker, lighter. Can you accept that God made you the way you are and that you are uniquely made and you are loved in the eyes of the Father and that you can best hallow and worship God's name through the person that you are, through the gifts that God has given you, through what you look like? Can you accept that? So the next time you pray and you say, hallowed be your name, remember and understand what you're asking for. It's a dangerous prayer if we think about it. So here's a recap of what we went through today. 
of the Lord's Prayer, that the proper motivation to prayer, it's to be with God. It's not to impress other people. The proper approach to prayer is to approach God as Father, not as our homeboy, not as an impersonal force. It's God as Father. And thirdly, the proper concern of prayer is to plead that God's name would be hallowed and worshipped in our lives. I hope this made sense and was, was communicated and you saw this through the word of God. Here's my big idea to wrap, uh, bring this to a close. That prayer is an intimate conversation between the heavenly father and his beloved children with the ultimate purpose to behold God's name and glory above all else. Kind of a mouthful, but I hope that captures that prayer. It's not about getting that B plus to an A minus. Prayer is about the glory and the hallowing of God's name so that God would be our treasure in our life, that we would worship him. And through that, the world around us would see our treasure, which is the Lord, and they would come to hallow the name of God. As I bring this sermon to a close, I have to make one final warning. Not every person in this room can call God Father. Not every person here is allowed or permitted to approach God as Father. Why do I say that? If there are some of you here that you are still, you haven't given your life to God, you're still lost in sin, the Bible says that you are an enemy of God. You're not a child of God. You're an enemy of God. And just as silly as my example was, just as awkward as it would be to call Pastor Albert my dad, for a non-Christian to call God Father, that would be awkward. If you were to die and say, God, you're my father, he would say, I never knew you. So that is the warning I have to add. Simply put, are you saved? It is only the miracle of conversion and salvation that cleanses you of your sin and adopts you into the family of God. Otherwise, we have no right to call God our father. Have you placed your faith in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus? There are many here who might be wandering in their faith, having one foot in the world, one foot in the church, thinking that is doable. Brothers and sisters, that is impossible. You cannot have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. It's either one or the other. If you are not saved, I invite you tonight to consider the gift of salvation in John 3, 16, which, which says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Every single person here, apart from Christ, stands condemned before a holy and perfect God, which we deserve eternal death and separation. We call this hell. But out of the love of the Father, he sent his son to suffer the death we should have suffered so that the wrath of God will be satisfied on our behalf so that you might be justified and adopted into the family of God ultimately allowing us to God to call God Father. So let me ask you again, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, will you trust in the wonderful news of the gospel and follow Jesus with your life? Before you even attempt to pray this prayer, 
I pray that that would be something you wrestle with first, which is your faith. This is the most important decision in your life. It will not just define this earthly life, but the life to come. So that was my final warning that not everyone here can call God father. And I pray that we could have a conversation to give our lives to God so that we can get to a place to call him father. Let me pray for us now. And I want to begin by praying the first phrase of this Lord's prayer that our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, we fall short of hallowing your name. We fall short of true worship of you. We are seduced and tempted by earthly idols. The idol of success, the idol of friends, the idol of love, the idol of social media, the idol of video games. We do not hallow your name and treat it as holy. But God, that is our ultimate concern. Lord, would you change and move our hearts in such a way that you would be our treasure. That when we encounter you, we would be willing to give our lives to live our entire lives for your glory to trust you more and more each day. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Uh...